Welcome once again to 20 Minute Topic with me, Marcus Stead and Greg Lance Watkins. The election is over. The Conservatives have won with a majority of 80. There's lots to talk about, so let's crack straight on. Greg, I don't know about you, but it's become clear that this podcast, of all places, is the place to come if you want an accurate prediction, because we've been saying for weeks and weeks, or specifically I have been saying for weeks and weeks, and I've stuck by my prediction, a Conservative majority of about 80, and that is exactly what we've ended up with. And looking at why, people say to me, how did I come up with this prediction? And I, you know, I was putting it on social media, I'm sticking with my prediction, a Conservative majority of 80. And people ask me, why, why did I get this? Well, there's two reasons. The first is that I learned many years ago how to interpret opinion poll data correctly. And I, I think mainstream journalists on the whole were looking too much at uniform swings rather, rather than regional factors and constituency factors. And the other is, I think that inside the London bubble in which most mainstream journalists operate, there was not enough comprehension of just how angry people are in traditional working class communities about the fact that the Brexit vote they voted for three years ago had not been delivered. So... I combine that with, I think there was a lot, uh, quite a lot of pragmatism about the least worst option in this election, in that a lot of people felt they couldn't vote for a Corbyn-led Labour Party, and they were willing to give Boris Johnson the benefit of the doubt to a large extent. But here we are now, Greg. Boris Johnson has got a sizable majority, a majority of exactly 80. He will get his legislation, his withdrawal agreement through Parliament. And then, and this is something I don't think has been talked about enough, yes, we will be outside the European Union by the end of January, but then we begin a two-year process of negotiation on a longer-term settlement on our, the nature of our relationship with the EU. Um, I agree with you. You were accurate, um, but I'm not letting you be the only person who's conceited around here. Um, I said that Boris Johnson would get between 37 and 42 more seats than he required for a majority. That is, um, to get the government, uh, you to get to be the government, you have to get 326 seats, and he got uh, 40 more than that. Um, so both of us were absolutely spot on with the figures we were giving. Um, his majority means that he will be in a position to deliver what the politicians of every party by a majority in the House of Commons promised to do uh, the result of the original referendum. It was the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats and the SNP who chose to renege on their undertaking and dishonestly on in the part of uh, the Labour Party, uh, refuse to recognise democracy. Yeah, that was a huge factor in this, and that's something we're going to come on to now. Because what we saw <coughs> were, in many parts of the country, whether it's Mr Blair's former constituency of Sedgefield, places in County Durham, Wrexham, the Vale of Cloyd, Bridgend, working-class communities have voted Conservatives. They've abandoned the Labour Party after many, many decades, a 100 years in some cases, and gone over to the Conservatives. Labour has been pushed back into its only its safest heartlands now and the London bubble. It barely exists beyond that now. And this is an, an incredible situation. And it, I think Boris Johnson, in his victory speech in the uh, the early hours of Friday morning, he got the right tone there, I thought, because... 
there's a humbling about this in a sense because he is being given a chance in places where the Conservatives haven't been given a chance for many, many decades in quite a lot of cases. But with that comes a sense of responsibility and a duty to deliver. And these are parts of the country that have been underinvested in in years. Not enough job opportunities, not enough job prospects. And the, the reason, as George Galloway said on his radio show some time ago, you go into the Labour heartlands and you ask, why did these people vote for Brexit? And yes, there is that little bit of an element, perhaps in a small number of cases, that they don't like immigrants, which is the stick that the London bubble, the London elite has tried to beat them with. But the reality is they are concerned about uncontrolled mass immigration. They are concerned about crime. And they are concerned because, frankly, life just isn't very good. So I think this is an opportunity now for the Conservative Party. They have been given an opportunity to gain the trust of these communities. And that's that's a huge humbling thing for them isn't it really i think um, it's the second time you've said in this podcast that the working class i think what you actually have to realize about the labor party is it isn't actually the working class uh, the very to be specific the very bottom end of society the labor party has clamored on behalf of but done nothing for the working class as opposed to the benefits class the labor party has done nothing for whatsoever now when i say working class of that ilk i mean those who do work the type of worker who two generations ago would have been using would have been basically manual labor who uh, due to the invention of a Mr. Biro, a Hungarian, uh, now wields paper and biro, is just as working class and more so, and he has done nothing for them. The Labour Party has never done anything for them. And the Labour Party has never done anything for the middle class. And the Labour Party has, without exception, kicked the bejesus out of the successful. But I've got a different take on this because I think something quite profound has happened in the Labour heartlands this time. I think it has been a clear rejection of the close to, if not actual, Marxist agenda of Jeremy Corbyn. Yep. It has been a clear rejection of the stench of anti-Semitism that's been around Corbyn and his... I cabal. agree. Not, maybe not so much Corbyn himself, so to an extent Corbyn, but people around him and people as part of the momentum movement, and as Kate Hoey said on them television during the results programme, they have patronised and insulted those who voted Leave and their concerns. They've ignored their own voters, they've ignored their own communities, and frankly, those communities have now bitten back on that. They voted for Corbyn in 2017 because at the time, in that general election 2017, Corbyn said he would honour the referendum result. Well, we've seen Labour backpedalling over all that time. And I'm going to actually quote um, a personal friend of mine who I don't agree with politically, um, the former Cardiff Labour councillor Ashley Govia, who has got no time for Corbyn. And he put on Twitter, uh, in re reference to the Corbyn agenda, Tax, tax, spend, spend, nationalise everything, hate business, hate aspiration, strivers and success, hate progress, dither, be morally superior, can't believe that didn't cut through. And that last bit is obviously sarcastic. But I think Ashley's got a good point there. Labour, in its current form, has nothing 
to appeal to the aspirational people, people who want to better themselves, the small businessmen. And these are the sorts of communities. We need small and medium-sized businesses in those former industrial heartlands if people are to get on, people who will open small, medium-sized businesses and to therefore employ 10, 20, 30 people. And therefore that's 10, 20, 30 new taxpayers people paying into the system, people then have money in their pocket as well because they're in a job earning money to spend in the local community. This is an opportunity for the Conservative Party, if it gets this right, to really connect with those sorts of areas. It went even further than that. I watched, as I believe you did, television coverage from uh, the close of polls uh, at 10 o'clock right the way through to 7 o'clock the next morning as the results came in, and I was absolutely astonished listening to the every Labour commentator. They could not accept that they had betrayed their electorate. Their electorate had betrayed them, which was outrageous. That was what I took from the coverage as well, because it was as though their gut reaction particularly, as you say, the Labour pundits and the, 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 the hard-left journalists who are appearing on the results programmes across all the different broadcasters, BBC, ITV and Sky, their instincts seem to be to give their voters in their heartlands a good telling off rather than take a moment to do what Ashley Govier has done, but to be fair to Ashley, he was never a Corbynista to begin with, reflect on why they didn't vote for you this time, reflect on the disconnect, and let me offer another little clue to these people, these people who lived their lives within the London bubble and the dinner party circuits of Islington and ironically Jeremy Corbyn is the MP for Islington and he had a stonking majority in his seat let let reflect on this people in the former mining areas are not uncaring but they're not overly concerned about woke issues they don't want endless debates about transgenderism or pushing the LGBTQ plus agenda they want to talk about jobs cutting down on crime, dealing with the homelessness issue, dealing with um, the Brexit they voted for more than three years ago. This is how you connect with people in these communities. And I'm afraid that people from the middle classes going on television saying that, that, that effectively that their voters are stupid, insulting people like that, as Kate Hoey rightly said, no wonder they didn't vote for you. Well, let's face it. Let us take the direct example and the obscene arrogance of Corbyn, who in his acceptance speech in Islington implied that the voters were the losers around the country because they had not understood the Labour Party and had thereby not voted for them very foolishly, and that he was not going to lead the party in view of the results, into a future general election. Well, he wasn't going to lead them into a future general election because he would by then be far too geriatric to do so, Uh, point one. Point two, he said, I will remain with the party, in other words, leading it, to do a thorough analysis, presumably, of why the Labour electorate was so stupid and to uh, seek out the policies for the way forward. In other words, how to get across to them Marxism and and 
nationalization of everything and borrow, 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 spend, 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 and the huge plethora of free things they were going to get, like free broadband and free and a third reduction on rail fares how is he going was he ever going to fund it and that's something i I think people saw straight through i think that was something people saw straight through but this brings me on to an important point and it's this in any democracy it's healthy to have a strong opposition that looks like a government in waiting because we know from history in Britain and elsewhere that when the opposition is weak very often it leads to arrogant and complacent government and we've had a question in from a friend of mine a man I've known for many years Tony Davis who is a man of the left but he accepts the referendum result he would agree with our broad analysis of where Corbyn went wrong and he asked me about the future of the centre-left now, what we've seen with in the years since Corbyn became leader and, and in the years since is the very demographic of the Labour Party membership change very dramatically. We've seen this entryism of students and people on the hard left and the sort of middle class academic classes, if you like, have joined the, the Labour Party. It's no longer a party of the working people and it's not even the party anymore of the small and medium sized businesses that back Blair, particularly in his early years. So for somebody, let's, let's, let's address Tony on this, uh, Tony Davis, and say the future, call it the centre left, call it what you will, is the Labour Party salvageable or does a new party need to start from scratch and take the place so that there is a credible opposition? And in our adversarial parliamentary system, there is room for two points of view. Is there a need for a new party or a new movement to come along, which point one accepts the result of the referendum and point two has something to offer those sorts of communities okay they've given the conservatives a chance now maybe they'll stick with the conservatives but the importance of a strong opposition in a democracy cannot be underestimated and something needs to happen doesn't it um indubitably something needs to happen but the big problem of starting a new party is it would take years to get it get the grassroots sorted out uh, because it would be a little bit like running a parish where you had uh, a committee of frequently extremist people get involved at the outset, and it takes you quite a long time to weed them out and get competent people in place. Then the other thing is that with a new party, you have to set up a structure. You require in the modern world, literally millions to set up that structure and get it up and running. That takes time. And you and I both know from our own experiences that new parties and smaller parties are prone to split. It happens time and time again. And conveniently enough, this brings me on to the next point I wanted to make. We're rushing through this because we've only got 20 minutes in this topic. It does what it says on the tin, this podcast does. 20-minute topic means exactly that. The subject of small parties, the Brexit party. And, well, I, I think there's two big points I want to make here. They cost the Conservative Party seats in this election they almost certainly cost them two seats even in Newport, a working class town, working class city, I should say, in South Wales. And we also 
because of their actions. We lost decent people on the Labour side. In particular reference I'm making there to Caroline Flint. I think this election has proven that Nigel Farage has behaved grossly irresponsibly. I don't believe, uh, I've all never agreed with Caroline Flint on anything. I am truly sorry to see her no longer in politics. Hmm. She was an honest, competent woman. She had very different views to me, but she was an honest and outspoken politician who represented her people admirably in that she was a Remainer. Her constituencies voted leave and she, having been elected to represent her constituents, campaigned heavily to honour the leave vote. So there were politicians like that who ended up being bumped off the list by the Farage cult. I do not accept that it was the Brexit party. It never was any more than the last 15 years of UKIP. We're, we're r- rapidly running out of time, so two more quick issues I want to get through. We can return to all this stuff in more depth in future podcasts. But Boris Johnson, we've talked in previous podcasts about how his various character weaknesses and his character flaws, and it's something I've talked about for many years, but his lack of attention to detail is one of them. I think it's very important that he now surrounds himself with the right sort of people and not just yes men or yes people, as I suppose we should say nowadays. Uh, Boris, uh, I would agree with you, is not a man of detail. He is a man of humour. He is a man of erudity. He is a man capable of putting on paper or delivering a witty, informed and educated speech. And I believe that he is now in the right position. He can hire a very large and very competent team of people to deal with the detail. But I notice that the very first thing he did was deal not in broad brush terms, but deal with the detail. In his statement when uh, he had passed 326 seats, he thanked not the Tory party, not the Tory voters, but he thanked the Labour voters and Labour supporters who had lent him their vote. And I notice his very first foray beyond the Westminster bubble is to be in the north of England. He's going to Salford to personally thank Labour voters for lending him their vote. And he's to be commended on that, certainly. Now, final point then. The quote of the morning on Friday was from Piers Morgan, as far as I was concerned. He said on Good Morning Britain, Twitter has once again lost an election. And his co-host Susanna Reid said, Twitter is out of touch. And that to me was spot on. The echo chambers and the trends of Twitter bear absolutely no resemblance to how people behave in real life. Quick comment from you, please. Um, I agree with you. Um, The Twitterati are a farce. But then you have to look at somebody like Hugh Grant, who every single politician that he supported lost their seat, without exception. Nobody is listening to these people. And when they wheeled out the rather unfunny, self-opinionated comedian Stephen Coogan to give 
political insight to people. He just made a complete and utter fool of himself and was proven 100% wrong. That is the Twitter echo chamber, the bubble think, the uh, group think where people only listen to people who agree with them. You only have to look at the nationalists in Wales who were castigating um, the Welsh people and calling them everything under the sun because they were so stupid they didn't vote for the nationalist party. It's farcical. These bubbles, echo chambers, groupthink are uh, making complete fools of themselves and proving to be wrong, wrong and wrong time and again on almost every issue. My thanks as always to Greg and my thanks to you for listening. See you next week. Thank you.